Hi everyone, welcome back to the Fowler Hour. On today's show, I'm going to be joined by Laura Evans of Nifty Fox Creative. Laura is an illustrator, visual storyteller, live scriber, and brand identity designer. It's quite a lot to go through, and I'm really excited to share the ideas of visual storytelling with you on today's episode. Today's show is brought to you by Skillshare, and Skillshare is giving away two free months of any of their classes to all listeners of the Fowler Hour. You can go to the link in the description or head to skl.sh slash cfowlerdesign to get your two completely free months of unlimited classes, and it's going to help you whether you're already a design or creative professional or you're just getting started in this world, and there Skillshare has thousands of classes for you. So go to that link again, it's skl dot sh slash design. Right, on with the show. Hi Laura, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you Connor, how are you? I'm pretty good, thank you. Today guys, we're joined by Laura from Nifty Fox Creative. She's way up north from me um, at the moment, but it would seem that in comparison to other places, you know, some of the people I'll be talking to over the next few weeks, you're probably one of the closest, really. Um, yeah, with Americans. Yeah, all of that type of thing. Yeah. But so before we get started, Laura, can you explain to the audience who might be listening at home who you are, yeah. what you do, etc.? My vital statistics, yeah. So, yes, love to hear uh, My name is Laura. I'm from Nifty Fox Creative, and I am a visual storyteller, graphic recorder, and live scriber. Um, so, what that means is that I help people think visually to think differently. Um, and that involves taking pictures and making them work to explain complex ideas by making them more simple. And by communicating them visually, um, people can make better connections between ideas, which helps creative problem solving and actually helps you engage audiences more quickly than if you used words. So that's, in a very brief nutshell, what I do. You know, it seems like you left no room for us to have a conversation today. Um... <laughs> Sorry, should I have just come there? Yeah, let's, let's rewind that and just say, hi, my name is Laura. We'll start from there. Okay. Um, yeah, so one of the reasons I wanted to bring Laura onto the show and bring yourself onto the show was because the visual storytelling aspect and the ability to, um, as you say, get people's attentions, educate them, allow them to pick something up that's new to them quickly mm-hmm. through visual aids. Um, yeah. Something that I'm very aware of in terms of the type of person I am. I'm a, a visual and kinesthetic learner, so I have to see it and do it. Yeah. Um, so I, under- I understand and appreciate that, but I didn't realize that it was, is it so common throughout business and corporate and, and just people in general that it's faster through visual? Yeah, I think what I've found is that people are bored of the way information is currently presented to them in a business sense. So if okay. you think about the rest of our lives, and how we receive information now. It's all on our phone, all very visual, very instant, and we're constantly dealing with images. So when we take that into a business context and people are given 50-page reports or you know emails and th- these really important messages, we're kind of having to flip between two different sides of our brain to a side that we don't normally use that much in our everyday scrolling, internet thinking, mm. of life. So... I'd say that it is, it's becoming more common for big businesses to start using a more visual language because they're having to appeal to such wider audiences now yeah. and kind of lay audiences, if you like, from who they're used to dealing with because of social media and you know, the globalisation um, of our world, thanks to the, the internet. So it's becoming a real need for business people to talk in those languages and, and ensure that their message can be understood universally, not just by somebody sat at their desk in London, but somebody on a farm in Africa or, yeah. you know, somebody around the world in China. So I think it's definitely becoming more common, as I say, but businesses are still quite far behind in how to communicate it, which is where I come in. Yeah. Because they lack creative problem-solving skills in some in some ways. I'm making massive generalizations here, but oh yeah, no, I completely understand. I work with. Um, they think it's so novel because they've never thought in pictures before, or, or why that would be useful. Um, and taking doodling out of kind of the realms of deviance, if you like, and something you shouldn't mm-hmm. be doing, to something that actually is really valuable to telling a story, to problem-solving to communicate in business strategy 
which can really blow some CEOs' minds, really. And you have to kind of show them to prove to them how it works. It does make sense. So when you're... Um, maybe maybe not even before you get into the room to take live scribing notes or anything like that. Yeah. What is your process for acquiring these types of jobs, particularly when um, a business, as you say, might be super far behind? I assume a lot of the people you deal with um, are people who were around during the very early days of computing or before mm-hmm. that in terms of business. So have mm-hmm. always just dealt with numbers, spreadsheets, letters, notes, post-its. No one's really sat down and shown them, okay, well, if you get an iPad and a pencil, an iPad pencil, we can very quickly draw out sketches that represent this entire conversation. How yeah. do you educate someone or even just kind of get the sign off to say, right, I'm going to come and sit in your, your conference meeting today and actually help you? I guess it's a few things. I think, first of all, they come to me with a problem. So people see my work and think, I like the look of that, but I'm not really sure why I like it or how it's useful to me right now. <laughs> I'm not sure why I like it. <laughs> they come to me with a problem, which is normally I can't engage my staff. I can't tell my story or share my message effectively or nobody's listening. Why so is listening? that all internal problems? Yeah, so internal yeah. and external, to be honest. So okay. that the way, normally, or the way I normally get clients is they see me at an event already or they've seen my work online or colleagues share work that I've done or try and communicate with them via my work and it works and people engage more. You know, um, a really good example is I've done some mental health research communication that was just not being looked at at all. And we've increased engagement by something ridiculous, like 400%, which is yeah. unheard of. So they normally come to me via that route and then we start with their problem. I don't even talk about visual storytelling or live scrap or anything until we've defined that problem. And then we look at what they're doing now. So why isn't it working? Oh, well, I'm sending out this 50 page report and nobody's opening it or reading it. And then you think, well, if I sent you a 50 page report, would you open it or read it? (laughs) Uh, Because I certainly wouldn't, it's boring. And that's where you have some really hard conversations because especially with uh, research, they do a lot of work with academics. They're very protective of their work and they think it all needs to be there for people to get a message or to understand what they're doing. And actually, you probably need about 5% of it to get the message across. You've got to entice so, people too, don't you? You have to yeah. actually get yeah. them on board with the idea. Because exactly. yeah. as, as much as having a good copy in your subject line to your email, it's still a 50-page report. Like It doesn't matter how much word art you put on it. Unless you're going to give me a million pounds for reading it, or you know, a decent <laughs> Amazon vouchers, I'm not going to bother. So, I'd like a Thornton's box yeah, <laughs> and a bunch of flowers, box. please. Yeah, but this is the thing. This is what happens. So they are failing to engage the very people they need to engage to make change. Um, yeah. A lot of the work I do is with universities, researchers, um, the government, who need these people on board. Um, and we're in a very time poor society now so we we work out you know the average person will look at this email for two seconds if they don't see something appealing in that email for example then they're not going to bother or if they're going to attend an event well what are the outcomes why should i give you eight hours of my time yeah so we look at why it's not working and then then at that point we look at alternatives and sometimes that will be me going to meetings to help them work out what on earth they say because again part of the skill that I've had to develop is listening for common themes not listening to everything so actually it's been real really fascinating to realize that 75% of the meeting is just for want of a better word bullshit (laughs) and people speaking because they feel like they have to speak not because we're here for an hour yeah (laughs) yeah Um, invoice (laughs) yeah there's no there's no value um or they'll decide okay we have this real standard communication of our strategy or um anything research report how can we condense this and make it more visually appealing or let me come to your conference and let's create visual notes that you can share it afterwards and create new connections and because i am often a lay person in this experience i bring a new outlook to the whole system i guess yeah. So I have to ask stupid questions or obvious questions 
which can often challenge people and make them think about exactly why they're communicating their message or what they need to communicate and why. In, so, in, sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to cut uh, you off. But I mean, no, go, go for it. In, in, in many ways, it sounds to me like what visually you're doing is shorthand. Yeah, I so, guess so. Um, it's like the evolution of shorthand. So, in obviously, in years gone I mean, by, kind of, but yeah, but yeah. yeah you so, know what you know what I mean. You appreciate yeah, what I'm so saying. Yeah. In the in the shorthand was originally done to gather key points to take notes on a fast scale that could be representative and easily digested later, or someone yeah. could expand on it later. So, yeah. In in what you're doing and what I've seen of the work that you do, it is taking, as you say, those key points, those common themes. But if you then gave that back to the CEO or the team members and the team members went, well, I don't really understand what this means. The second that CEO sees that icon, they'll go, oh, I know exactly what that means. Here, let me explain it to you in person in, in a minute and a half rather than in a 50-page document. Yeah. Yeah, very true. I think it's, it's about making it digestible. So there's yeah. no, I'm, I'm not under the illusion that my work will cover everything. It's, an, it's a route in, it's the conduit yes. to engagement. So... Mm rather than giving them this report blind, they've already got an outline when they see something that I do. And then they think, oh, okay, so now I understand. I, I develop that understanding through visually seeing what's going on. Then I can read the report with more depth, speed, and recognition of what's going on that I wouldn't have already had. So it's, it's kind of that step before the detailed stuff and then you engage more people at this point, which is more, you increase your engagement at the next point. Um, and then even those that haven't gone on to read the report will still have a good enough idea or, you know, whatever message we're communicating will have a better idea of what's going on than they did prior to seeing that. So it's, it's kind of this route in to some very impenetrable things that I've had to do. Yeah. Um, it's taking it a step back and enabling people to, access it in a new and different way and actually expand the audiences i mean some of the research that um the, the universities i'm working with have done is so valuable to the everyday person but you're not going to sit in a library and read that because you wouldn't even know it was there or no, it, needs, it, was it needs to be a 10 point buzzfeed quiz please thank you well, exactly yes <laughs> yeah how to you know solve depression uh, in 10 points yeah. um so that's the thing, it's, it's about making it accessible and using visuals to level people so that, you know, whether you're a CEO with a massive education or, you know, a person that's unemployed might not have a great education, you can both understand what's going on. Um, and I think that's the beauty of what I do is that it enables me to talk to many audiences in a way that is quite um, egalitarian, I guess, and quite... Yeah, it, 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 puts, it puts everyone kind of on the same playing field. Mm -hmm. Um, but do you find, or have you ever found that when you've taken this approach to, uh, to, to live scribing and visual storytelling in general, that by leveling that playing field, you actually piss people off who are higher? Uh, up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, they don't feel like they have any control of the information and, and things like that, I would assume. Um, I, I know that if I was made, I'm trying to put, put myself in the shoes of a 60 plus CEO who's been in business for 30 years yeah. uh, being told that his way of writing a report is not good enough anymore um, yeah. or is not effective mm. enough. Yeah. So, so when you're trying to level the playing field, obviously, you know, it makes better for businesses. I'm sure that you have at least some statistics. You're saying 400% increase on a project you've done. Um, and these business statistics obviously will help you gain that connection. If someone's not listening to the to the creative side of it, you can be like, okay, well, here's some numbers for you. But yeah. when you've got in that room and you've kind of explained to them what you're going to do, has anyone kind of withdrawn from your process or what you were trying to offer as a, advice and as, as a diagnosis um, for their problem because they think they're going to lose power or lose control? They've never withdrawn. Um, and that's either because I am too charming or yes. too good at but, um, <laughs> it's probably a mix. I've definitely had pushback, and especially right. from academics. And I vividly remember being at a university and being in a room. It basically felt like I was being interrogated uh, by ten <laughs> academics at a time. That was that was a stressful day. Um, but their pushback was 
well where pe- people won't take us seriously or people we think we're deliberately dumbing down. And the response I have to that is to show the statistics from other work and say, yeah. okay, but the way you're doing it now isn't working. Let's focus on the, the problem so we can find the best solution. You're an academic. Not, yeah, <laughs> yeah. If it's not, if, if what we're doing now isn't solving the problem, then why wouldn't you try this way? Um, and yeah. because I do come from a social research background, each piece of my work goes through a rigorous evaluation process. So we have KPIs, we have qualitative interviews, we have quantitative methods to measure engagement and metrics that can tell us whether it's doing what we've expected. So I think when I come at a project, I come at them as an academic on their level and talk yeah. them with that language. And then, and then sometimes ignore everything they've told me because I know that it will work. Yeah. So sometimes it's about playing the game and understanding where they're coming from um, and playing buzzword bingo a little bit. But on the whole, it's normally showing them, well, here's a problem. This isn't working. I can prove that what I've done has worked. So you'd be foolish not to try it. Um, yeah. And have your rigorous process during the whole piece of work, especially for something bigger like um, I'm just doing a, I'm doing a brochure at the moment for a research think tank on kind of condensing about 100 pages of their research into a one-page oh um, right. poster, which is a headache. But it, it's basically showing them, well, if we try this way, then I think we're more likely to get the result that you want. Um, so I, def- I definitely have pushback. And that, that is simply, will we look stupid, is the core of what they're asking. Yeah. And will we not be taken seriously? And my response is, you're not being taken anything at the moment because nobody's reading it. So you'd rather be taken in some way or at least have a ripple where you're attracting attention. Yeah. Than the- so it goes back yeah. to the thing as as we are, I also find, and you probably find as well in terms of branding and, and approach mm-hmm. and, and people's uh, experience of what they think other people think of them and caring too much about what other people think. I mean, the people you deal with in in universities, in the academics, whether or not their research um, is going to change lives, they've clearly spent a long time doing it and are probably proud of the work they're about to publish. So the fact that they are, it's, it's, as you say, it's foolish to just sit there and be concerned about maybe, maybe someone from another university in, in the States might be a bit annoyed that we've, we've included a, a beautiful illustration on the front page of our research or, yeah. and it, it seems very foolish to approach it with that angle because you're just going to be stagnant. You're not going to yeah. take that next step and actually try something as they have done throughout their research. Yeah, absolutely. And researchers do their research because they want to change the world and you can't yes. change the world without communicating it in a way that's received by the world. So well, it's, in, the, it's the comment of, if a tree falls in the woods, does anyone hear it if no one's around? Exactly. exactly. You, can, you can publish this, but if no one's going to see it, what was the point? Yeah. But I think it's a big part of my job is helping researchers understand why people should and would give a shit about what they're doing. Because yeah. they know, the researchers know, but for me or you, we, why, why would we care? You know, why would we care whether orthodontic work in you know, Surrey is having a great impact on our dental health. Why, why, why would I give a shit? Like, honestly, that's generally some of the questions that I ask is why should I care? Um, and that helps them think about their research in a different way from being precious about it and trying to defend why they've done it to opening the door and thinking, well, actually, why should people care? And it's not a, ch- a question that is meant to be um, inflammatory or mm. um, hard it's meant to open up a bit wider discussion on, okay, well, they're not really going to want to know the ins and outs of my methods and how I've used a realist theory to do that. They want to know, well, we found this. This means that it applies to your life in this way, and this is what we can do about it. So a big big part of my job is helping researchers be less precious over the minutiae of their findings and be more aware of what people actually want to know. That's honestly, that's the hardest thing. And I think 
when it comes to obviously understanding that research and condensing it, that's an amazing skill to be able to take that high level information, regardless of the, the X, the output of it, obviously yours is, is largely visual. Um, but if you can, can there, a, there's obviously there's an app at the moment going around called Blinkist, which although oh, I've yeah. not used it, yeah. which it summarizes books into a short yeah. audio podcast or, um, a short summary and now i don't think you can get all the information from it but i'm sure it gives you that high level information that entices you to go and dig a little deeper i know yeah. that whenever i hear something maybe on the joe rogan podcast um they had a sleep scientist on a couple of months ago called matthew walker and he was beautifully well firstly he was a quite handsome man but moving on <laughs> but he had a beautiful way of describing his work yeah and he knew how to describe his work in a way that was appealing and understanding, understandable to the lay person, to, the, to someone who doesn't know anything about his work or anything about sleep. Mm. And after that, I went and bought his book. So exactly. it, 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 good yeah. communication does work. So by you taking that step in and going, well, let's take what you have and let me show you another way maybe it will help change that industry ever so slightly for people to be able to go, I'm proud of what I've made. I'd like to share it with everyone rather than kind of just dig my hole a little bit deeper and only talk yeah. to my researcher friends with terminology they understand. Exactly. And I think it's always, it's always great to see your work in the wild and people respond to it. Yeah. Uh, and I think I've had some stuff on Twitter recently uh, with, um, Cochrane Common Mental Health Disorders are a big research group that do systematic reviews of other research that's been done. So it's basically like a big um, literature review. They take all the research that's done and then try and condense it. So weirdly, what I do is a condensed version of a condensed version of the main thing. So we did something on um, anorexia and how family therapy, so getting the whole family involved in um, counselling and CBT can help improve anorexia recovery. And it was the, just, we tweeted it out and it absolutely blew up in, we had good feedback and aggressive kind of angry feedback, but neither was about the way it was presented. It was actually about the content of the, the review itself. Mm. But each part, each side, commented on how much they valued seeing it in this way because they would never have engaged with a review and so researchers would never have known the good bad or indifferent opinions of people with lived experience of that condition if they'd just thrown a review link out and gone we've written this and nobody would have into a wasteland but if you give them something visual and go we have written this what do you think and it, it was made there's probably about 70 to 80 comments on a twitter feed that normally gets two yeah is that um, so it's always humbling to see it working and it's nice to see researchers then come back to me and say, oh, you were right, actually. <laughs> like, that was I sad. sat and read all those conversations. Yeah. yeah. Something, something um, like that when it actually connects to people. Yeah. So thank you because then that will improve our research. I think it's, it's an iterative process. So, um, and I'm still learning about the best way to communicate things visually. Um, and how much to play on kind of cultural tropes of of what something means visually versus maybe something a bit more sensitive. So the anorexia stuff, for example, I went very literal and very emotionally deep with some of those images yeah. because I have lived experience and because I wasn't afraid to do that, um, which perhaps other graphic designers or illustrators wouldn't necessarily have that understanding of both the research context and the context of it of living it itself so yeah it's um it's just awesome i just can't believe i get paid to do what i do to be honest <laughs> <laughs> and if you keep waking up like that and keep feeling that way then that's yeah. the best thing yeah so, i often I was thinking that today i was on my ipad drawing something for uh uni of york and i just kind of had that realization of paid to just sit and doodle all day and read research <laughs> careful now but yeah to combine two of my passions in a way that I never thought possible even when I started as a graphic designer yeah uh, is awesome really because I, mean, I still do branding I just don't talk about it as much on my feed because it doesn't light me up in the same way. I love it, but it 
doesn't feel like a merging of two sides of what I do. Um, well, maybe it is. Hmm, maybe we need to rethink that. Um, but yeah. So now when it comes to your, your background in research, mm. do you think that that has helped you understand this industry a little bit more? So what I'm trying to think of is someone who might be listening at home, we've just explained um, what you do in terms of live scribing and how can that benefit people and how it actually can potentially expose work of what is a very academic subject to a much more layperson perspective. Um, now, when it comes to maybe thinking about other skills you've had in the past, obviously your background in research, do you yeah. think that has been helpful in guiding you down this path um, even if it's just in terms of uh, networking and connections and, and language skills mm. to being able to solve and help understand these people's problems. Because I'm sure there are many yeah. people listening who, if I, if I brought up a picture of your work on screen, would go, oh, well, I could probably, maybe I could yeah. tr have a go at doing something like this. Um, they probably wouldn't be able to condense it so well, but they could probably have a crack at it. And, oh, yeah. but, it's, but when it comes to the actual communication level with yourself and the client and the problem, does your background help you and, and how do you think it's helped you? It, it definitely does. I mean, I did a degree in sociology, a master's in social research, and then worked for universities researching for six, seven years. So I already had a network of people who knew that I knew what I was doing. Um, and it helped me understand research from both the researchers point of view but also the people that you're trying to communicate to and their point of view because I did a lot of outreach work so a lot of what I did was knowledge transfer which is basically getting research from here to out there uh, in a way that you can demonstrate your impact so networking definitely helped because then when I contacted people that I used to work with with what I do now they already knew who I was knew my research standard knew me from that academic side of things which is always going to give you a foot in the door yeah um, especially with the universities um understanding the language of research and how it works was really helpful so some academics deliberately try and test me to see how much i understand theoretically which i bet that's a fun uh, conversation <laughs> yeah, uh, they'll you know drop in a like a Foucauldian theory of power was a recent one oh, and then I could just knock out and go oh yeah I did my master's thesis on that so you know here's the books I read and this is what I found so God, I can't imagine what that atmosphere must be like it's been a long time since I've been sat in a room with someone trying to show me up and yeah, on an academic very, level yeah it's very rare but I think if I if I go in with a level of confidence about my academic ability, mm. it kind of helps them feel more comfortable that I'm not, and I hate to use this phrase because I don't believe it, knowing many creative people, just a creative. And I hate that. I hate that. There's You're this, a person who draws shapes. That's, that's all you do. Yeah. Like, no, those shapes mean stuff. And um, so it's, it's, yeah, that, that has definitely helped me. Um, and I think when it comes to problem solving, because I'm a researcher, I don't even pick up a pen to start drawing until I've meticulously understood the problem and, and how I'm going to solve it. So it, it has definitely helped. But then on the other, other side, and we talked about this at the Birmingham Design Festival, is that I don't have, you know, a designery group of friends that I can go and chat to about, oh, does this look all right? Or what do you think of this? Because that, is, that isn't the circle that I've moved in. Um, and that's why going to stuff like the Birmingham Design Festival, which we're totally going to again this year, and I'm going to shamelessly plug it on your podcast. Um, I think it's 7th till 9th of June in Birmingham, my hometown. Yeah, you just got muted. Sorry about that. Oh, no, that's fine. That's no, <coughs> fine. No kidding. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd be wearing like, a mask. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, that's the other way. I wouldn't say it's hindered me, but it's definitely helped me become a bit more resourceful in how I've learned my design side of my job. Mm. Um, but that's something I definitely have put on my resolutions for this year to improve is developing my designy networks because there's definitely a lot more that I have to learn kind of practically about the programs that I use and my skills that I'd like to look to 
you know, my contemporaries like yourself on how to become more of a illustrator with or Photoshop that I hate, but I think that's just more ignorance than anything. Um, so it yeah, I wouldn't helps. worry. Yeah, it definitely helps. Um, but it doesn't mean to say that we, we all have networks that we can draw on. And I think I just went into business mode and thought, how can I sell myself and make the most money out of who I already know? Um, yeah. A really good book I'd recommend for that. I can't remember the guy who wrote it. It was called How to Run a Business in 10 Easy Steps. And I think step two is write down a list of every single person that you know and how you could pitch what you do to them. Like not in a scary way, like when you at Tesco or whatever. You jump out of bin and you go, yeah, hey, like, ah, here's yeah. my pitch deck. Yeah. Hi, I mean. Business cards. Um, yeah. But thinking about how you can drop somebody an email in a way that seems genuine and authentic. And that, you know, I've probably done that a bit, but then I've been really fortunate in that what I do seems to be turning somebody on somewhere in the academic and business world. So things lead to another thing and then that gets seen by somebody else, which then gets kind of into my radar again. So I'm, I'm very fortunate that, you know, work has been forthcoming and I haven't had to do too much, um, outward promotion such but i never rest on my laurels with that it's always good to be consistent yeah and going but going to your point of you've found a niche based on what you and who you have known previously and although that niche may not be the one you stick in forever it's serving you pretty well now yeah i'm not gonna change it it's not broken (laughs) yeah yeah if you're thinking about someone or someone who is is listening now that if you are new at your industry and maybe new to what you do doing what Laura's done of write down a list or even just reach out to people on the top of your mind who you think might be able to put you in contact with somebody else. I was on a podcast literally two days ago with, uh, with Lisa Jacobs over in the Netherlands and she's put me in contact with somebody in the States who I wanted to talk to for a long time because they talk every day and I would have never have known that if I hadn't had the conversation. And unfortunately, if you don't have that type of conversation, you won't even get, you won't even be able to explore the circle you have, let alone try and expand that to further industries. As you say, you largely work with academics. Um, but mm. what other types of industries you work with? You work, you said you work with government or council. Um, yeah. Well, uh, it, it's kind of, it's bizarre. Um, I'm working with the Ministry of Justice at the moment. Okay. So HM Prison and Probation Service. Yeah. Is terrifying. Um, <laughs> uh, Hopefully, no, in terms yeah. of the, the content they've given you, not actual. Yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> like, the nicest people ever. They've got the. I work with um, a set a section called Digital Studio, who do a lot of their um, kind of electronic infrastructure. So, right. checking inmates in and making sure they have a system of all their information and their data. Um, and they're big on trying to get computers into prisons in a safe way so that prisoners have access to things like, um, you know, when can I use the gym? How much money have I got in my account? Um, can I learn some stuff from Wikipedia? Um, and actually giving them some support psychologically as well, because the most searched for thing in prisons when they have put computers in there were Facebook because they want a connection and how to stop me killing myself which may break my heart hearing that Mm. so i'm working with them at the moment to communicate how they deal with data um, and also neurals and stuff in the office to communicate their kind of strategy and values really which is is super exciting i'm hoping to see them again next week see h and prisons um i've done work a lot of work with local councils charities is a big one um again because they have so many stakeholders of varying levels of education and means using my work helps communicate what's going on in a much much clearer and easier to understand way for everybody, um, whether their first language is English or not. Um, I've worked with smaller businesses who like to bring me in for meetings, just to kind of spice it up a little bit. Sometimes I do feel like the um, the word I was going to use was sexy, but I don't think that's the word I want to use. But <laughs> novel, the novel, interesting. Oh, look, we've got a live scribe at our event. Um, Everybody most, behave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So 
that, that's been really interesting is that I've sometimes felt like we've brought in as like a token, oh, we've got some extra budget, let's do something different. Interesting. And then actually people have realised, oh, yeah, actually, she's brought real value to this and we're reusing the images in our research, yeah. in our business cases. Um, and actually just started a partnership or fingers crossed that iron's in the fire with an events company to do more conference stuff. So I'm hoping to go even more corporate and work with, you know, bigger companies. There's, there's um, my sort of, I fangirl hard over a company called Scriberia who work in London. I don't, I don't know. I do not know of, but yeah, go ahead. So they, they work with people like Deloitte and Facebook and Twitter and they do big visual storytelling, rich pictures, and they're like the masters of it, but they are like a 30 strong team. Uh, in London charging extortionate prices. So where I'd like to see Nifty Fox going is creating kind of this northern powerhouse, a bit, a bit like Skyberia, um, with where I can take on illustrators and can take on graphic designers and can take on researchers as a big team to then start kind of developing a more refined process, teaching people visual thinking skills and actually sharing the skills and teaching the skills across the country internationally um, so that we can get good shit out to people more easily, I guess. Um, yeah, that was, that was going to be my next question. My next question was, where do you, where are you wanting to take yeah, this business oh, line? <laughs> but what are you thinking about in terms of the future of what you're doing? Obviously, at the moment, you're working within academia and mm-hmm. um, the whatever system, prison system and things like that. But the types yeah. of clients you have are typically more corporate, as you say, or research as an academic. Do you think, or where do you just see in general, the idea of visual thinking and visual storytelling going in, say, five years as we progress to having more stuff instantly available, more things are visual. Where do you think this could go for you? And how do you think it might impact the industry? Because at the moment, it feels like what you're doing is not particularly well known from my perspective as in terms of design side. But yeah. I have an inkling that by the time in five, five, ten years time, if you're still doing this, you will have crept through these niches and these areas of industry. And then it will just explode because it will be available in all these very high up places. And it's just going to kind of burst onto the scene. Yeah, I guess... I guess because it's my job to know who else is doing it, I I don't think what I'm doing is... I don't want to belittle myself a little bit, talk down myself, but I know the people that do it that are brilliant at it, but it just seems that in my particular field, it's a, a very unusual way of communicating, so I'm in a relatively high demand. So where I think where I see it going in future is that because of so much of our life is online now and so visual, I think we'll see, a, you know, the death of the report and we'll have, I mean, infographics, for example, everybody loves an infographic. And I think visual thinking is just a, an extension of, of that, really. So I kind of see it as a requirement of business communication rather than a nice add-on where I feel it is at the moment. Yeah. Um, what I'd like to see kind of five, ten years down the line is visual thinking being taught as a skill um, in schools, in businesses, in universities, and less reliance on words. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm an avid writer and avid reader and you know, mm. words are always very important to me, but I think actually opening up ways to present work, I'm just thinking from a school and university perspective is that there'll be more, you'll be assessed on more than just, just your words. I think, um, from a business perspective, as I said, I'd like to expand into a team. Um, don't know when yet. Um, <laughs> when the demand goes from fairly in demand to extremely in demand. Yeah, I mean, it's, we're, mm, it's moving that way. So um, I'd really like, because here in Sheffield, we have a wonderful illustration degree at Sheffield Hallam Uni. And I know some illustrators on that. And they're incredible. And I just think, if I could just nick you, and give you this research knowledge so that you can stand in front of an academic and not feel like you want to kill yourself, Yeah. then, then you'd be amazing. So I, I think I'd like to take on some, maybe just some interns this year, just thinking small scale, to train them up to do live scribing because some of them will inevitably be better illustrators than I am. I'm, you know, I'm not the next, you know, I can't think of an illustrator now, but 
for example, Lisa Maltby is an illustrator I absolutely worship. She's from Sheffield. So I might not be the next Lisa Maltby, but I think it's helping develop a team that have really good skills. And I think that's something that Scriberia do really well, um, is then teaching what they do so other people can do it in business themselves. So I think, yeah, more workshops, more teaching, bigger team. And I'd love to write a book, but I don't Or draw know. a book. Or draw a book. Yeah, when I say write, I mean draw a book. <laughs> um, and I'd, li- I'd like to use more of it in branding. I mean, I do do branding work, but it's very, that's kind of very traditional logo, words, copywriting. And yeah. I've not yeah. been as adventurous in that. With I'd love to do a whole brand that's completely uh, communicated via visual storytelling. So no very little words and you follow the story of a, of a brand through a website and I'm sure I can get an exciting brand to do that or I might just make an earth and see how it goes. I, I think you're probably right I think there's multiple companies who have come out fairly recently in, in terms of rebranding MailChimp mm. being one of them yes definitely um, yeah. who are using a very heavy odd illustration style um, mm. it's unusual it doesn't match uh, it pairs well with what they have in terms of branding, but the illustration style is, if you're not sure about someone listening at home, if you're not sure about what the MailChimp website is, go and look at it now. But the type of illustration that they have is very, as if you've done it with a, a stick of charcoal. Uh, it's very rough and ready, uh, but it's animated beautifully. Mm. And that makes a massive difference. And I don't think, obviously something we are taught all the time is thing, a, a logo, for example, needs to be simple, appropriate, and distinct. Illustration yeah. can be the same, but it's how you represent that information. So they are, and particularly going back to the MailChimp stuff, the types of illustrations they're using at first glance might seem very unusual. But the second you get used to the style, it's a very good way of condensing down a lot of buttons, information. You want to know what section you're on, you're feeling a bit lost on the website maybe. You always have these illustrations popping up and moving around that guide yeah. you exactly where you need to go. And the story side of that, the storytelling aspect of that is going to be a big thing, I think, in the next five five to ten years in terms of branding because everyone is competing and unfortunately the tried and true, maybe even very corporate KPI tactics of how many times can we get this person to push a button or respond to this newsletter doesn't work anymore. Um, You'll be attracting people who are responsive to your story and you need to be telling it well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think I need to check out the MailChimp website, actually, because I've not seen it. It's really good. It's very adverse to what everyone else is doing at the moment. It's very good. That's exactly right, though, isn't it? Because it catches your attention, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, d- I definitely see it as the future of branding. And I know that a lot of brand designers, you know, wang around the word visual storytelling without probably knowing exactly what they mean by that. I mean, I'm very literal with that. Like, I'm literally not using many words to tell a story. Um, and I guess a logo is a great form of a visual story. You're telling me, you know, that, like the Apple logo, there's so much dripping, you know, so much um, meaning dripping on that logo um, that that is already telling a story just from, you know, that being on your phone. Um, you, you did remind me of two things. So one is I'm learning animation at the moment, so that's going to be another dynamic awesome. box, um, which is frustrating but wonderful at the same time and to another brand that i've seen which is um ear up north um is a place called grim and co made by side design side by side who are a design agency here in sheffield and grim and co is a old um apothecary that they've turned into um a creative writing space for kids and all of their stuff is very illustrative very visual storytelling so it's a charity yeah sell things like it's a, got a shop front and they sell things like farts in a jar and um That's like goblin in soup yeah but whole brand and the whole shop front is just beautifully illustrated and so much imagination to help kids in a deprived area of rotherham learn how to write creatively so Something that that is something I'd love to do. I'm just a big again a big fan girl of Side by Side, who are a big deal here in Sheffield, and um, using your imagination and visually translating that excitement to help engage kids, especially. 
Um, so that's merely me shouting out to them because they're great and people should check them out. That's Grimm and Co. G R I M M. As in Grimm's fairy tales. Yeah, as in Grimm's fairy yeah. tales. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And the monogram that they've created for that is absolutely stunning. I think I nearly cried with how much I like that monogram. Is it, is it a G and a C? As in G Amber stand yeah. and a C. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just look at it. Just go look at it. It's stunning. Honestly, beautiful. So when um, we when we're thinking about um, kind of the the last thing the the thing you mentioned about kids is is really interesting because and the fact of the idea of using illustration to direct them in a way of being creative or to at least absorb information yeah, and absolutely. there was um, I can't remember the name of the study and it was it was animated in a really nice way I saw on YouTube a couple of weeks ago of how the education system at the moment in particularly in the states is having a record number of dropouts before college. And okay. it's largely because, or seems to be largely men, which understandably, it, it seems that just seems to be the case across the education system in general. But um, regardless of the fact, it, what they're struggling with is that the education system is very much a business presentation. It's a PowerPoint. It's a PowerPoint yeah. with 600 words on that no one's ever going to read, but everyone's going home or on their lunch breaks looking through their phone or an iPad or something mm. digital that is much more vis visually engaging and interactive and they're not getting that in terms of education so not only is it at the level you're working at in corporate that you see this problem but this problem is still is is at the source which is in schools yeah to be able to if you were to take your skill into schools i think that uh, would be extremely effective because yeah. i know that when i was in college the worst thing that i had so between 16 and 18 I would be falling asleep in my biology lessons. Wow, yeah. I'd actually be like, I, there was at one point where my teacher came around and whacked a ruler on the table in front of me because I was a fast asleep. And it wasn't because, well, firstly it was because I was exhausted, but in general, yeah. because yeah. It, in general, it was because the information that was being provided was not stimulating at all. The topic was interesting, but the way it was being outputted or trying to get into my head just didn't work at all. So, yeah. Do you think there's any room for this type of, um, as things become more digital, every kid has a laptop or an iPad in school. Do you think that someone with your type of skill set would be beneficial in the classroom kind of setting? Well, I'm definitely going to write that down as a workshop idea to pitch to teachers. So thank you. I should probably give you commission on that. But uh, yeah, I'll I take think 5% so. royalties. Thank yeah, you. Absolutely. Five, you're quite, yeah, that's not too bad. Um, I think. I have high hopes for you, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I absolutely think that's a direction we need to go in. Um, I mean, I, I'm working with some university lecturers at the moment to do that for degree students. So why wouldn't we just go a level down in the system and work with kids who are going to be way more receptive to that and kids yeah. are being learners. And I think what my personal bugbear is that I didn't go and do a creative degree, even though I wanted to, when I left college because it wasn't what, in, in the kind of the way that knowledge is organized, academic bookish words was, is always seen as higher or more academic or better than creative skills. If and that's really, and read a thousand pages. Yeah. yeah. That really needs to change because I think I've learned more about myself and challenged myself and grown as a person exploring my creative skills than I ever did being an academic. Um, and that's helped me with, you know, confidence, helped me with people skills, problem solving, even, you know, applying it to my personal life and thinking, how can I be a kinder, better, more creative person to solve my own problems? Um, and I think introducing visual thinking at that early age and showing kids that might not learn in traditional ways. I mean, teachers are great and they're doing the best they can within a structure that they have. Um, and I'd be shocked if I didn't say that because a lot of my friends are teachers. But if for a kid that finds words hard or finds the way that we're taught we should learn from reading this book and then just writing it again, there's got to be other options. And I'm sure there are loads of innovative teachers out there doing this, but we're still assessed by exams. And that is unrealistic to how the rest of the world and business works. In, in no point in my life have I ever had to do something in exam conditions. But, you know, it just seems bizarre to me. So I think teaching visual thinking skills and allowing it as a, a form of knowledge that's equal to 
the more academic book version of knowledge needs to change otherwise we're going to be producing uh, you know the next generation of kids that can't interact with this new digital visual world um, and th- but this isn't me knocking books because they're bloody great it's just giving people options to suit their learning styles to ensure that we see all knowledge as equal not as better or worse and I think that's why we get a lot of kids that you know hate exams or get really stressed about exams when we're just prioritizing one form of knowledge that is has only been told we've only been told that it's the best by a patriarchal society from you know the 1800s really but that's my sociology brain turning on so <laughs> here it comes we've got another hour coming up guys get ready yeah there's there's some food for thought for you for anyone listening and the overall consensus to this is i think that everyone needs to spend a little bit more time thinking visually in terms of solving problems um and that the best way to engage with people who may not otherwise be able to express themselves in or have never expressed themselves in a visual format to academics or your clients in general taking this approach to it applying it with some actual kpis or some reasonable data you can assess may be an extremely beneficial thing to you and your business so thank you very much laura for joining us today where where can people find you where would you like me to point them um i'm basically on all social media platforms as at nifty fox creative so instagram is probably where i'm most uh, active you can find me on twitter under that name i'm on behance as well under that name and on dribble uh, under that name although i probably should post there more so just come and hang out with me on instagram and then if people want to get in contact with me directly you can head to my website which is niftyfoxcreative.com and um, find my email address and a lovely um submission form on there awesome okay well all those links are going to be down in the description as always so thank you very much laura for joining us today and we'll see you guys next time